If you have your Bibles, please uh, turn to uh, Job chapter 32. And while you're doing that, I want you to understand that um, Job is a difficult book, as you probably discovered in the messages that I've been giving. Uh, but it's difficult not only because of the material that it covers, you know, does God care? Uh, does he seek to punish all evil or all bad things that we do? And is there any sense of redemption or is it all just he can't wait till you mess up and then he punishes you? But the other problem with Job is that in much of the scriptures, it gives us obvious statements that we are to conduct our lives. So for instance, Jesus says, a new commandment I've given to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You love one another as I've given myself for you. Give yourself to one another. The teaching is very clear. The doing may be a little more difficult. It may be more difficult for us to love people as Jesus has loved. Um, but he's made the teaching clear. Uh, other places, for instance, when it says, what are the greatest commandments? Uh, Jesus responds, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And doing those two commandments, you pretty much uh, fulfill all of them. So Jesus tells us clearly uh, what are the important commandments and how that will help us fulfill them all. Job is a little different. It's more like, for instance, when I uh, went to school, you were taught, okay, two plus two is four, and you memorize that, and, and you do your multiplication tables and those types of things, and you just kind of learn by what the instruction is. And when I went to law school, it was much different. It was more of a sense of what's called Socratic me method. You were, instead of telling you what the answer was, there would be questions that would cause you to think. And then as you thought, other questions would come and there would be this back and forth to, to come to understanding. And that's kind of what the book of Job is about. It doesn't necessarily give us all of the answers. As a matter of fact, sometimes it doesn't even give us the right answers. As we see in the various uh, friends that Job has spoken with, and even Job himself will sometimes come to the wrong conclusion. So what we're required to do, which makes Job more difficult to understand, is that you then have to think about what's going on and think about what these men have said about God and what God himself has revealed to us and to kind of compare. So it is a sense of you have to have a, a mental exercise to understand better. And so you just don't quickly read it and say, oh, um, his friend so-and-so said X and, you know, and it's in the Bible, therefore it must be true. Or it's not, and it requires us to think about it. Con consequently, that's kind of the type of message that we find ourselves in chapter 32. The title of my message is Passion, Anger, and Speech. A lot of times we kind of com compare and contrast the idea of passion and anger. So for instance, even in the law, uh, we diminish the potential punishment of somebody who 
murder somebody in the heat of passion. And we kind of view that passion as something that it really is anger that we perhaps maybe understand or, or excuse because of the situation. But passion and anger are different. Passion isn't something that you're taught. It's something that, that you experience because something you deeply believe and feel uh, and, and it affects your life. And so um, many years ago, I remember going to a, a, a visiting another church uh, in a different state. And I won't tell you what state or what church. And they had a custom of having a, a gentleman come up and he was probably a deacon or maybe even the chairman of deacons. And he would read a scripture. And this particular time, I remember he read a scripture and it said, Praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. That person was not passionate about all. It was actually very boring. It's kind of like, what are you even doing reading that scripture if you don't have the passion that that scripture represents? Similarly, I've seen pastors and preachers who are uninspired and, and not passionate about the Word of God. And in my estimation, if you're not passionate about the Word of God and you're a pastor or, or a preacher, you ought to find yourself another vocation like insurance salesman or something because you should be passionate about the Word of God. And so passion is not anger and anger is not passion. Uh, unfortunately, you can't teach someone passion, to be passionate. You can try to teach somebody not to be angry. Uh, anger seems to just come naturally, uh, and we need uh, to curb it in ourselves and in our children so that we don't act in such a way. So the, the, the message here is passion, anger, and speech. We should be passionate about what we say, but we should not say it in anger because anger will cause us to say things that perhaps we should not say or are hurtful or not helpful. So oftentimes spouses will get in a heated argument and they will say things that are hurtful and then that damages the relationship as opposed to staying silent in that anger, and then when you're no longer angry, respond in such a way that is helpful. The scriptures talk about anger in such a way that, in essence, it says a person who controls his anger is a person who has understanding, but a quick-tempered person is folly. He's a fool. Uh, the scripture also tells us that we should um, not let the sun go down on our anger. So it's, it's telling us not to be angry. It never tells us not to be passionate. Now, why do I bring these things up? Because what we're going to see from this new person that is going to be on the, the stage now, uh, he doesn't see that. And the scriptures are going to, to by contrast, say, 
Here's someone who thinks he's wise, but he's angry. He's not necessarily wise because he's angry. But the scriptures don't, in this context, doesn't tell us that this person is a fool. It simply tells us it's angry. So therefore, we have to consider and think about what the scriptures are telling us and looking at the whole counsel of God so that we might understand. And so in chapter uh, 32 of Job, it says this. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So they had had this series of conversation with Job, basically condemning him as being an unrighteous person and Job refuting their condemnation and at times wondering why God was doing what God was doing but he would maintain his integrity. And it came to this point where his three friends no longer had arguments to be able to refute Job, and probably because Job was right and they weren't. So they were stopped because they, they couldn't convince Job that he wasn't righteous. Verse 2, But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram burned against Job. His anger burned because he was justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. In this five verses, four times it tells us that his anger burned, that he was angry. He wasn't passionate about what he was doing. He was angry. He was angry at Job. He was angry at his three friends, the three friends, because they could not convince Job otherwise, that their arguments fell short. And because of that, he was angry at all of them which again tells us because of his anger, he's acting foolish, not wise, even though, as we will see, he thinks differently of the subject. So Elihu, the son of Barat Rachel, the Buzzite, spoke out and said, I'm young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in a man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So this person who's now on the stage, we've seen the three friends of Job, and we've never at all been exposed to this fourth person uh, in the conversation, but apparently he was there, and he listened to all the conversations, and he... I said, not I was angry, but he says, the reason I didn't speak until now was because I was a young man, and I thought because you were older, you'd be more wise, and you'd be able to put Job in his place, and you can't. And he comes to, to the conclusion that just because you're old doesn't make you wise, and he's certainly accurate in that. I've seen some very old people who are very early, foolish, and I've seen some young people who are wise beyond their years. And he's also right that there's a sense that God is the one who gives 
understanding. Because as the scriptures say, that it's a fool in his heart that says there is no God, but it's the one who fears God who seeks understanding. And so he says, I refrained until now, but I'm not going to keep quiet. Even though I'm younger than you, I have probably more wisdom than you because you haven't been able to get Job to in their three and in his fourth opinion to see the error of Job's way. So in verse 10, it says, so I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I think. Behold, I wait for your words. I listen to your reasonings while you ponder what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. Do not say we have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor I'll reply to him with your argument. They are dismayed and they no longer answer. Words have failed them. Shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stop and no longer answer? I too will answer my share, and I also will tell you my opinion. So again, he goes on and says, you haven't been up to the task, and therefore I have to take it on myself to do this. And that I have these words that will convince you, Job, that you're wrong, and I'll be able to show the three friends that if they would have just said the words that I'm going to say, that they would have been able to put, again, Job in his place. Then he says in verse 18, For I am full of words, and the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskin that is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So, basically saying, I'm going to bust a gut if I don't speak that I'm going to be, I'm compelled by my inner being to speak up. Now, I have been in a similar situation as Job. I mean, I'm sorry, not as Job, but as Elihu. Because there have been times that I've decided, well, I'll go visit a a Bible study or something, and, and I'll say, I'm not going to say anything. And I make a commitment to myself that, I'm not going to say anything. And then they proceed with their Bible study and, and somebody will say something that, that is obviously contrary to the scriptures or that I think needs to be further examined. And so I find myself uh, violating my own commitment to myself to not say anything. So I, I understand there's that sense of, of wanting to say something and being compelled to do it. But the problem is, as we started out on this chapter, he's doing so in anger. And by doing so in anger, he's going to say things, or at least potentially say things, that are not going to be accurate and may be hurtful. So he needs to watch in that. As a matter of fact, we are told that very thing in James. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. Starting with verse 2. 
For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bit into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So he's saying even though you can take a horse that's more powerful than a man or a ship that is larger and, and blown by, by winds and sea currents, the pilot or the rider of a horse can direct it by simply moving the mouth or moving the, the rudder, saying, and the tongue has that kind of impact in our lives. So, also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and of creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So James follows up and says, we need to be careful what we say. Because with again, with the same mouth, with the same tongue, we can bless God and we can curse people. And I am a big offender of that. I will be driving in my car, singing a worship song along in the radio. And then somebody will cut me off or do something that irritates me. And I'll say something uh, totally inappropriate. Fortunately, there's no one around to hear me. But I, it still came out of my mouth and my heart. That ought not to be. The scripture says that we need to control that. We need to be able to speak only the things that are helpful, that are edifying. Yes, there are sometimes that we need to correct people and the thing, but we need to do that in a loving way and not in an angry way. And so the scriptures teach us that we shouldn't be angry. Certainly we can be passionate. We shouldn't be angry, but we also need to understand how the tongue can impact. You will hear many people say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me until your character is assassinated by someone. Then you'll find that words can be very harmful. And so, again, this wisdom is not specifically told to us, but we're to understand that through this wisdom teaching in the book of Job, we are to consider these things. 
not to speak in anger, not to, not to feel that just because we're compelled to say something that we should say something. There's an there's a adage that says, it is better to remain silent and let everybody think you're a fool than open your mouth and rid all doubt. So make sure when we do speak, especially when you find yourself agitated or something, that it is something that is constructive, that is something that is beneficial, and that your anger doesn't affect your speech. So then Elliot is going to continue on. As a matter of fact, we're going to see some more of his, his speech to Job and, and in the next um, message, we'll continue on with this. One of the longest speeches uh, of anyone in the scriptures uh, of, uh, in, book, in the book of Job. So it says, then these three men ceased answering Job. I'm sorry, wrong, wrong verse. Chapter 33. However, now Job, please hear my speech. So he's now, he's kind of talked about you friends of mine, have, you are older, you're supposed to be wiser, you're not. I'm compelled to say something, so I'm going to say it, and I'm angry. And now I want Job, I want you to hear my speech. I want you to listen, to pay attention, and listen to all my words. So he's saying, make sure you pay close attention. Behold, now I open my mouth. My tongue is in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. And my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourself before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I, too, have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily on you. Surely you have spoken in my hearing. And I have heard the words, I'm sorry, and I have heard the sound of your words. Now it's interesting here. Basically, what Elihu is saying is, I'm speaking for God. God has placed his spirit in me, and, and what I'm going to say is if God himself spoke. And that I'm righteous, which I find interesting because he's claiming that he's self-righteous, which is the exact complaint he has against Job is that he thinks Job is complaining and being self-righteous. He's not coming to him and saying, okay, um, I understand that we are the same uh, and I'm going to come to you trying to understand where you are and let's come to a consensus. No, in essence, he's going to be just like the three friends that Job had. He's going to be condemning He's going to basically judge Job, which is something the scripture tells us that's something for God to do. And when we're going to do it, it's when all things are already known. So it's not that we're never to judge. It's just the time and the place. So he's now going to quote Job, at least partially. He's going to quote Job in a way that's kind of makes his argument uh, more obvious. So he's saying, I am pure without transgression. So he's saying, this is what Job has said. I am innocent and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. 
for God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. So he's saying that, that in this, why are you complaining about what God is not doing, that God is greater than you? And he's right in that. God is greater than all of us. But again, we need to be very careful when people give us counsel, that they give us the whole word of God, not bits and pieces. And so, yes, he's exactly right. God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him? And there is that sense of, he's, Job is going, why are all these things happening to me? Because I haven't done anything wrong. And Eliyahu says, God doesn't have to give you an answer. And he says, if God speaks, he can speak once or twice. Yet even then, no one notices it. And he goes, in a dream, a vision of the night, when sound asleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. So he's saying God has various ways of communicating what he wants to communicate. He may do that through dreams or visions or other things. And so it is God who is trying to instruct men, which I find interesting because we will see in next next message that this very same person will say, oh, what does God care if you repent or not? Then he'll say he wants God he wants God wants us to repent. And then he goes, Well, what benefit is it of God if you do? So he's all over the map even in his understanding of who God is. that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his soul favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones, which were not seen, sticks out. Then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. So he's saying, basically, for those who rebel against God, those who are evil, those who are wicked, those who are unrighteous, he goes, God deals with, and you'll see that in the physical and the way that, that they prosper or don't prosper. So again, he's still into this retribution principle. And he's saying, God is doing these things to get you to turn. He's not doing these things because of punishment per se. He's doing these things to get you to repent. As if there is an angel as a mediator for him, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then let him, grac- let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him that he may see his face with joy and he may, be, may restore his righteousness to man. He's going, look, God is doing these things, his argument is, to get you to repent. And if you repent, then God is going to restore you 
and give you new flesh and things are just going to be wonderful. You just need to repent. The problem is, is that he's got the right prescription for the wrong disease. Job is not unrighteous. We're told at the very beginning that as far as God is concerned, that Job is blameless in his sight. And yes, it's true that God sometimes uses difficult situations to cause us to repent. But the scriptures also say that it's your kindness, O Lord, that leads us to repentance. So God doesn't always use punishment or difficult situation to cause us to repent. Sometimes he simply blesses us to get us to understand his goodness and his grace. At least in Elihu's view, there is the hope of redemption. The others pretty much kept saying, you're condemned, you messed up, you're sinners, you didn't get whatever happened to you, it could have been worse, it should have been worse. At least this young man is saying, God wants to restore you, repent. And that's a conversation that he needs to have with almost everyone, that we need to repent, that we need to change our ways. But he's talking to the wrong person because God has not punished Job for his unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, God is showing how confident God is in the character and integrity of Job. It says, after that person repents, he will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me, for he has redeemed my soul from going into the pit, and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened and the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, and listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. I, I find that interesting because he's done nothing in his conversation with Job to show any sense of justification. He's only showed condemnation and judgment that Job needs to repent. And once he repents, everything will be wonderful. And God seeks for man to repent. And yes, God seeks for us to repent. But again, as I said, he's applying the wrong prescription to the wrong illness. But he should be t telling Job, let me pray for you. Let me come with what the friends came with initially, to comfort and to sympathize. And I'll wait with you and pray with you and see what God has in store for us. But instead, he's chosen to believe that this calamity has come because of his unrighteousness. He's never sought to justify Job. He's only sought to condemn him. Speak for our desire to justify. If not, listen to me, keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. How arrogant. But I bet you know some Christian brothers and sisters who seem to think that they know all the answers. 
They think that if they give you a Bible verse, that will solve all the problems. That if you name it and claim it, you'll be wealthy and wise and all these types of things. If you just believe in the miracle, it'll happen. And all these people will tell you all of these different things. Then question, when the miracle doesn't happen, well, maybe you didn't have enough faith. Or maybe you should have faith regardless of the miracle. And so make sure when you hear people giving counsel, and doubly make sure if you're the one giving counsel, that you give the entire word of God. And if you can't, I think you and I should do what the rabbi did with one of his members. There was an older lady in his synagogue who was about to lose her home in foreclosure. And she told the rabbi. And the rabbi went and sat in the bank president's office and just sat there quietly. And the bank president goes, Rabbi, what can I do for you? And he goes, nothing. I just need to sit here. And he waited a little while. He goes, Rabbi, what can I do? And he goes, there's nothing you can do. I just need to sit here. And after several hours, finally the bank president goes, Rabbi, there's something that's bothering you. Obviously, you wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't. What is it that you've come and sat here? And he goes, Ms. So-and-so, the widow, your bank is going to foreclose on her loan. And the bank president said, yes, Rabbi, I know, and there's nothing I can do. And the rabbi said, yes, I know, but I could not do nothing. So I had to sit here and be with you and remain silent. Sometimes the best thing that we can do for someone is to simply sit there and understand that they're hurting. Words may not answer, may not be the magic elixir. Sometimes we suffer to see just how much God loves us. It sounds really weird. And yet, we see through the scriptures when, especially the disciples, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, when they were persecuted, would come and rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for him. And sometimes we just need to have a different perspective. Rather than saying, why me? Maybe we shouldn't say, why not me? Maybe God, you love me enough that you're refining me to make my faith more pure so that I might honor you. And as this one counsel, that when those times come, that we will sing praises and will rejoice. But how much more authentic and passionate are we We praise him even during the difficult circumstances? Even when it seems that nothing is going right and God seems far away, that we still trust him. We still believe in him. 
And though he slay me, still I will trust him. And Jesus died on the cross. Didn't necessarily seem like love. Seemed like defeat. So we truly understood that his death on the cross covered our sin. And that his resurrection guaranteed our resurrection and our sanctification and our glorification. Sometimes we just need to be quiet. No matter how much we feel, we've got to say something. And let God speak. And all God's people said.